0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Tonight is Friday, November 18th, 2016. Before we begin the next segment of our commentary on Paul's epistle to the Hebrews, I would like to take a minute to talk about geography trannies. Yes, I said geography trannies. There are so many clowns who want to set themselves up as the prophets of some great new gospel, the revealers of some great unrevealed secret, when for the most part they are often totally clueless concerning the history of our race, the real history of our race, so they fill in the blanks for themselves, and the real purpose of the only gospel which counts, and that, of course, is the gospel of Yahshua Christ. Geography trainees attempt to transposition accounts from ancient history to different places on the globe. In other words, they claim that certain historical events did not happen where they are commonly believed to have happened. The assertions of these people can be quite extreme, and the schemes they concoct to support their claims can be quite complex. Over this past week, I was approached with two absolutely harebrained ideas. The first idea, somebody hit me with the other morning, the first idea was a claim that ancient Jerusalem was not in Palestine at all, but it was really in Mesoamerica. They're not the proponents of this idea, but this idea was brought to them. The second claim, Mesoamerica by Mesoamerica, I mean that part of the continents here in the West, which connect North and South America. The second claims, that the ancient land of Canaan was actually in Lower Caledonia, which is Scotland. There is an entire website devoted to this nonsense. These claims are incredible. The ancient world was described in the records of our race for thousands of years. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, for instance, had in many inscriptions recorded their marches and their conquests throughout Mesopotamia, Anatolia, Arabia, and the Levant, or Palestine. And they were always able to get tens of thousands of soldiers with their animals and equipment, to Jerusalem or to the other cities of Canaan in short time, and without getting in boats for a month's long journey across the sea. The Assyrian inscriptions describe the marches of the kings to places like Damascus, Jerusalem, Samaria. They didn't get in boats to do that. You can't tell me that Jerusalem, it, it is in the, the land of the Aztecs in Mexico. That's absolutely ridiculous. You can't tell me that the land of Canaan was in Scotland. That's absolutely absurd. When we come across these people, we have to just slap them in the face and tell them to get lost, beat it. Don't even pay these people any respect at all they're only creating distractions. Distractions which remove our attention from the things which we should be focused on. The location of Jerusalem was known to the Greeks and Romans centuries before the time of Christ and it has never moved. We may not like where it is today, but that's just a cold hard fact that we would have to face. Once upon a time, back in 2007, the Barnes Review printed an article which claimed that the events recorded in Homer's epics, namely the Iliad and the Odyssey, really took place in the land surrounding the Baltic Ocean. This is where the Barnes Review started to lose a lot of credibility with me. Of course, the Greeks themselves would never have believed such a thing. I try to forgive John Tiffany for this, since he does well in other areas, and he is no student of antiquity, but this idea is just as ridiculous a thought as these other tales which have surfaced more recently. If any of the tale-bearers had actually read the classical literature on a greater scale, they should have realized the impossibility of these claims. You know, the Greeks are sitting around for a thousand years writing about Troy and Achaia, and Macedonia and all of the many lands of the Mediterranean which are mentioned in the Iliad and the Odyssey and then in 2007 some clown comes along because of a couple of similar names and writes an article claiming that these events really happened in the lands surrounding the Baltic Ocean and not the Aegean Sea and Publications like the Barnes Review actually entertain clowns like that. We can't entertain clowns like that. The Greeks knew where the hell they were. They weren't smoking dope in 500 BC. Up until the time of Christ, we have 2,000 years of records from several nations, both in inscriptions and histories. Once we understand the depth of these, we can perceive a history and a geography of the ancient world that is relatively complete enough in substance so as to preclude any of these crazy theories which attempt to relocate the birthplace of our civilization to any other place on the globe. Without a solid foundation in the literature of our race, we are lost and we certainly shouldn't imagine ourselves to be Bible or history experts. Why do identity Christians even entertain such clowns? Just shut them off. As soon as they open their mouths with one of those harebrained schemes, put a sock in it. And with this we will commence with Paul's epistle to the Hebrews, part 9. I had um two subtitles for this program. The first is probably the more important one and, and that's Departure from Earthly Trappings. The second because it, it's a great part of this program, probably a couple of pages, is Greek cherubs and Hebrew Sphinxes. And I would Say it that way purposely. I'm not making a mistake. It's not Hebrew cherubs and Greek sphinxes. The idea being that the Greek sphinx was indeed the same creature as the Hebrew cherub. In the earlier parts of this epistle to the Hebrews... Paul of Tarsus had spent considerable time proving to his readers from Scripture that there is an eternal priesthood which both precedes and transcends the Levitical priesthood, and that the beloved King David in the Psalms had prophesied of such a coming priest which is after the order of Melchizedek, and that this prophecy was fulfilled in the person of Joshua Christ. Then in Hebrews chapter 8, Paul connected this prophecy, this prophesied priest, to the promise of a new covenant, which is found in Jeremiah chapter 31, which Paul had cited at length. Presenting that last chapter of Hebrews, among the subjects which we we had discussed, we hope to have substantiated three things, and then, in a rather long digression, a fourth. Firstly, that the writings of the Old Testament announce a new covenant in prophecies other than the one in Jeremiah chapter 31, which Paul had quoted. So in that regard, we cited Hosea and Ezekiel as second and third witnesses to Jeremiah's prophecy. Tonight we will cite more. Secondly, that the Old Covenant was broken, first by the people and then by Yahweh God himself. And therefore, nobody can claim to still be under that covenant. In that regard, we cited Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zechariah. And there is another witness in Scripture to the breaking of the Old Covenant and the promise of the New. And that is Isaiah, whom we did not cite last week. It's not that we had overlooked all these chapters in Isaiah, it's simply that we reserved it for this summation. In Isaiah chapter 24, Yahweh pronounces judgment upon Israel for the breaking of the Old Covenant, and he says in part, Behold, Yahweh maketh the earth empty, and maketh it waste, and turneth it upside down, and scattereth abroad the inhabitants thereof, And, of course, the earth in that context refers to the land of Israel, and no more. Otherwise, how could they be scattered abroad? And it shall be, as with the people, so with the priest, as with the servant, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower as with the taker of usury so with the giver of usury to him the land shall be utterly emptied and utterly spoiled for yahweh has spoken this word the earth mourns and fades away the world languishes and fades away the haughty people of the earth or land do languish the earth is also defiled under the inhabitants thereof because they have transgressed the laws changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant, and that's another witness to Jeremiah 8.8, 8, where the prophet Jeremiah had written, and the word of Yahweh said, that you think you have the law of the Lord, the pen of the scribes is in vain, meaning that the scribes had somewhere, change the ordinance. This breaking of the covenant, on the part of the people, was mentioned again in Isaiah chapter 33. And it was explained in Isaiah chapter 28, that the people had made a covenant with death when they forsook Yahweh their God. Then from Isaiah chapter 42, we begin to see promises of a new covenant in Messianic prophecies. The opening verses of that very chapter read in part, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my elect, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the nations. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed. This was a citation of John the Baptist, I believe, in relation to Christ. I may be wrong, a bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged, till he has set judgment in the earth, and the isle shall wait for his law. Thus saith Yahweh God, he that created the heavens and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth, and that which comes out of it. He that gives breath unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein. I, Yahweh, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the nations, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. And, of course, in the Gospels, parts of that passage were cited several times in reference to Yahshua Christ. In his second epistle to the Corinthians, Paul of Tarsus quoted from Isaiah chapter 49 in reference to Christ, where it says, Thus saith Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see in our eyes, Princes also shall worship, because of Yahweh that is faithful, and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. Thus saith Yahweh, In an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages, that thou mayest say to the prisoners, Go forth. To them that are in darkness, show yourselves, the prisoners being, the children of Israel in captivity. Them that are in darkness being, the children of Israel in captivity. Show yourselves, they shall feed in the ways, and their pastures shall be in all the high places, once they accept the gospel. In Isaiah chapter 55, the word of Yahweh says to the children of Israel, that I will make an everlasting covenant with you. And in Isaiah chapter 61, I will make an everlasting covenant with them, speaking of the same children of Israel. Speaking of a future everlasting covenant, the old covenant must be set aside as having been neglected. Yahshua Christ is that new covenant, as we've seen here. As he is the Messiah who came before the rebuilt Jerusalem was destroyed, as it is prophesied by Daniel. So those who deny Christ also deny Daniel and Isaiah, as well as Jeremiah and the rest of the prophets, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, which Paul did not live to see, although he forewarned of it in his epistle to the Romans is the absolute historic proof that Joshua Christ is the Messiah of Daniel's prophecy, and therefore he must also be the Savior and Redeemer of Isaiah's prophecy. So we see clearly that many of the prophets substantiate Paul's claim that there is a new covenant, and that there was also an old covenant meaning a covenant that is no longer in force and effect in spite of the vain protests of those who call themselves Jews today. That old covenant was still in the process of being eliminated completely, an act which was not fulfilled until 70 A.D. when Jerusalem was destroyed as prophesied by Daniel. So when Paul wrote this epistle in 58 or 59 A.D., his words are accurate where he said in the final verse of Hebrews chapter 8, that in saying new, he has made the first old, and that which is growing old and aged is near vanishing. And it did when the temple vanished again in 70 AD. Thirdly, we noted that the new covenant, both according to the prophet Jeremiah and according to Paul, where he had quoted Jeremiah without qualification, was made exclusively and explicitly with the very same people who had been under the old covenant. In fact, the several promises of a new covenant in in Ezekiel are also intended exclusively for the same children of Israel, which is fully apparent in the context of those promises as they appear in Ezekiel chapters 34, 37, and elsewhere. In Isaiah chapter 61, after the promise by Yahweh that He will make an everlasting covenant with the children of Israel. He then says, And their seed shall be known among the nations, and their offspring among the people. All that shall see them shall acknowledge them that they are the seed which Yahweh has blessed. The time for that acknowledgement is now, as only identity Christians had the key to this prophetic fulfillment. Furthermore, as we had also mentioned in a rather lengthy digression, as we see the descriptions of Israel being divorced in the prophet Hosea, we see accompanying promises that Israel would nevertheless be betrothed to Yahweh God forever. Later on, Judah in Ezekiel chapter 23, was told that she would suffer the same fate or drink from the same cup that Israel had suffered. Therefore, the fourth subject, which we hope to substantiate as fact, is that Judah was divorced from Yahweh as well as Israel. One of those same chapters in Isaiah where a new covenant is promised, Isaiah chapter 49, uses similar language likening the collective children of Israel to be the bride of Yahweh her God. We have cited the covenant promise in verses 7 through 9, and then we read just a few verses later from verse 13. Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth, and break forth into singing, O mountains, for Yahweh has... comforted his people, and will have mercy upon his afflicted, meaning the children of Israel going off into captivity. But Zion said, Yahweh has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman, and this is Yahweh's answer, can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yeah, they may forget yet I will not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. Thy children shall make haste. Thy destroyers, and they that made thee waste, shall go forth of thee. Meaning that they will leave Israel alone at some point. Lift up thine eyes round about, and behold, all these gather themselves together and come to thee. As I live, saith Yahweh, Thou shalt surely clothe thee with them all, as with an ornament, and bind them on thee, as a bride does. And in the captivity of Israel, they would have become many nations, and a great multitude of people, who would later be reconciled to Yahweh their God in Christ. Those are the nations of the ministry of Paul of Tarsus. Many centuries later, Yahshua Christ is described as a bridegroom but he came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, which Ezekiel described as wandering the mountains in chapter 34 of his prophecy. And it was the task of Paul of Tarsus to wander after them, bringing them the gospel, as it is announced in Isaiah chapter 52, where the word of Yahweh says, Therefore my people, meaning those children of Israel, shall know my name, Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he that does speak. Behold, it is I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings. Good tidings is the meaning of the word gospel. Good news. That publisheth peace. That bringeth good tidings of good. That publisheth salvation. That's the purpose of the gospel to publish salvation to the same children of Israel, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Every tribe and nation to whom Paul had brought the gospel of Christ had descended from the ancient Old Testament Israelites, and he himself provides proof of that throughout his epistles so wherever paul referred to all men while writing to any particular nation he is not referring to any men outside of these covenant arrangements which yahweh had made with israel paul's words cannot be interpreted outside of these predefined biblical boundaries which he himself has upheld So while it was not a topic directly related to Paul's words in Hebrews chapter 8, we nevertheless also hope to have established the fact that the ancient people of Judah, as well as the people of Israel, were both divorced from Yahweh their God. The Old Covenant was represented in Scripture as a marriage covenant between Yahweh and Israel, and when it was broken, the bonds were broken between all parties. As we cited Hosea, as well as in certain New Testament passages. The New Covenant is also representative of a bond of marriage between Yahweh and Israel, as Christ is called a bridegroom in the Gospels and the Epistles. For Judah to be a party to the New Covenant, Judah must have been divorced from Yahweh when the Old Covenant was broken. Those who maintain that Judah was never divorced by Yahweh seek to make excuses for the Jews and completely miss the subsequent statements referring to Judah being put away just like Israel had been put away. For those recited Ezekiel chapter 23 and Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 24, where it is made clear that Judah was indeed divorced from Yahweh their God. But the Jews of today have nothing to do with those statements, since, even according to Paul of Tarsus, they are not of Israel. But in any event, whether we speak in reference to Judah, Judeans, or even Jews, examining the prophecies concerning the end of the Old Covenant in Daniel chapter 9, Zechariah chapter 11, and elsewhere, it is clear that according to the word of the God of the Old Covenant, there is no more Old Covenant by the time in which Jerusalem was destroyed. This alone demonstrates the corrupt origins of Judaism, as well as the corrupt minds of today's Judaized denominational clergy, which somehow accepts Judaism as a valid religion, although it clearly has no part in any covenant. Even rejecting the new, they cannot make any valid claim to still be a party to the old. After citing the prophecy in Jeremiah concerning a new covenant. Here in Hebrews chapter 9, Paul proceeds by describing some of the trappings of the sacrificial system of the old covenant, and contrasts that to the superior sacrifice made by the new high priest, Yahshua Christ. Here it also becomes apparent, that the sacrifice of Christ was made on behalf of the same children of Israel, that the old Levitical high priests had at one time served at the altars of the temple. And Paul begins, So indeed, the first had decrees of service, and the earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was prepared, the first in which was the lampstand, and the table, and the presentation of the wheat loaves, which is called holy. After the words for wheat loaves, the Codex Vaticanus inserts the phrase and the golden censer. But rather than just the word holy at the end of the verse, that same Codex has... The holies in plural, not the holy of holies, just the holies, and the third-century papyrus P forty-six and the codices Alexandrinus and Claromontanus—they have holy of holies. The text of our translation follows the Sinaiticus, Prieurianus, and the Majority text, which has another insignificant variation. The phrase holy of holies which never appears in the King James Version. First appears in the Septuagint at Exodus chapter 26 verse 33 where the King James Version has the most holy. It also appears in the Septuagint at 2 Chronicles chapter 3 verse 8 where the King James has the most holy house. And in Ezra chapter 2 and Nehemiah chapter 7, we see the phrase holy of holies in the Septuagint, where the King James Version has in both places only the most holy things. All of the manuscripts employed for our translation, except the 3rd century papyrus P46, has the phrase holy of holies in verse 3 which also supports the fact that Paul was indeed using the Septuagint Greek or a very similar Greek manuscript as his scriptural text in verse 1 the reference to the first here is a reference to the old covenant mentioned in the last verse of Hebrews chapter 8 for that reason the King James Version adds the word covenant into the text In verse 2, the reference to the word first is a reference to the earthly tabernacle, which is the temple. Paul certainly seems to wax nostalgic, where he describes the relics of the Old Testament Israelites and the rituals and implements of the temple. But notice that he also speaks of them in the past tense, where he had written, the first had decrees of service. Now, it can be argued that Paul is referring to the tabernacle in the wilderness, but Paul doesn't seem to make a distinction between Solomon's temple and the tabernacle in the wilderness in these passages, probably because religiously there is no distinction. We will talk about a distinction, a serious distinction, when we discuss the Ark of the Covenant in relation to the second and third temples. So notice that while Paul speaks of the relics of the Old Testament Israelites here, he speaks of them in the past tense where he had written the first had decrees of service, even though the temple of Herod is still standing as he wrote. This is because the second and third temples, those of Zerubbabel and of Herod, we're missing some of the important items which Yahweh had the Israelites make in the wilderness and which were brought into Solomon's temple. We will talk about them shortly. The term lampstand is we believe a more practical translation for what the King James Version renders as candlestick. The phrase the presentation of the wheat loaves is a very literal translation of the Greek words. He prothesis, which is the presentation, its singular, and ton artone, which is of the wheat loaves, and its plural. Some translations simply write the show bread or the consecrated bread. The English standard version, followed by some of the others, changes the case of each noun in the phrase and inverts their positions, where it writes the bread of the presence since the Greek informs us that the presence is of the bread. This may seem rather rather trivial, but it exhibits how some translations have no qualms corrupting the simplest aspects of the original language. The Darby translation did better with the phrase and wrote the exposition of the loaves, which is fine. Throughout the King James Old Testament, the equivalent Hebrew term is translated as showbread, which first appears in Scripture in Exodus chapter 25. There, describing the tabernacle constructed in the wilderness, Yahweh states in verse 30, And thou shalt set upon the table showbread before me always. It is apparent that the showbread, which was to remain on the table in the temple at all times before God, was itself prophetic of the true purpose of God. To represent the body of Christ as his symbolic communion with his people. Paul continues in verse 3 to describe these old covenant trappings. Then, after the second veil, a tabernacle which is called Holy of Holies and the Greek here says Holy of Holies in all of the manuscripts in all of the great uncial manuscripts employed in our translation dating from the fourth, fifth, and sixth centuries. But that third century papyrus P46 only has holy Then after the second veil, a tabernacle which is called Holy of Holies, having a golden censer, and the chest of the covenant, having been coated with gold on every side, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and the staff of Aaron that sprouted, and the tablets of the covenant, and up above it effulgent sphinxes, overshadowing the seat of propitiation." Concerning which, there is not now opportunity to speak. And Paul didn't have opportunity to speak about these things, but we will speak about them at length. In verse 3, I'm sorry, I've already mentioned that. The Codex Vaticanus here wants the words translated as a golden censer and, but that same manuscript had added similar words in verse 2. So that's both of those maneuvers are probably a simple scribal error. A censer is a vessel in which the incense was burned. The word kibotos is a chest here, as the word refers to a wooden chest or a box, for which the King James Version popularly popularly has ark. Here we are also informed that inside of this wooden chest or ark were a golden jar holding the manna, and a staff of Aaron that sprouted, and the tablets of the covenant which Moses had inscribed mentioned throughout the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy. In the Old Testament descriptions of this Ark of the Covenant, there was a seat called the Mercy Seat, or the Seat of Propitiation, affixed to the top of the Ark. In 1 Kings chapter 8, we learn that the tablets of Moses were indeed within the Ark of God. But there is no indication that it held any other objects. As it says, there was nothing in the ark save the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. Now, that does not mean that these other items were not originally placed into the Ark of the Covenant. They were just missing, and perhaps that's why it's noted. They were just missing by the time we get to 1 Kings chapter 8, many years later. However, and and, and that is substantiated, and, in, in, and there's an indication that Paul is correct here. In Numbers chapter 17, verse 10, where we read, And Yahweh said unto Moses, Bring Aaron's rod again before the testimony, meaning the Ark of the Covenant, and the tablets inside, which were considered the testimony. Those tablets inside the Ark of the Covenant were the testimony, because they recorded what the children of Israel had agreed to at Sinai. They were the testimony. When propitiations were made atop the Ark at the mercy seat, they were made because the children of Israel had violated that testimony kept inside the ark these things are not often considered by Christians on a day-to-day basis and Yahweh said unto Moses bring Aaron's rod again before the testimony to be kept for a token against the rebels and thou shalt quite take away their murmurings from me that they die not. So Aaron's rod was very possibly kept in the ark with the testimony. But the ark of the covenant was not extant at Paul's time. Nobody knew where it was. And the accounts of the destruction of Jerusalem and the first temple, which are found in the canonical canonical scriptures, in our Bibles in other words, Do not inform us of its fate. After the revival in Jerusalem at the time of the good King Josiah, the ark is not mentioned again in Scripture except for a passage in Jeremiah chapter 3, which says, Turn, O backsliding children, saith Yahweh, for I am married unto you, and I will take you, one of a city and two of a family, And I will bring you to Zion, and I will give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. And it shall come to pass, when you be multiplied and increased in the land. The children of Israel were to grow into many nations in their captivity, in their dispersions. In those days, saith Yahweh, they shall say no more, the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh. Neither shall it come to mind, neither shall they remember it, neither shall they visit it, neither shall that be done any more. When Israel and Judah were divorced from their God, there was no longer any propitiation to be made for their sins. There is a passage in the second book of Maccabees, which is of interest, where it says in chapter 2, and I will quote, and it's lengthy, seven verses. It says in 2 Maccabees chapter 2, that it is also found in the records, that Jeremy, or Jeremiah, as he was called in the Septuagint, that Jeremy the prophet commanded them that were carried away to take of the fire, as it has been signified, and how that the prophet, having given them the law, charged them not to forget the commandments of Yahweh, and that they should not err in their minds when they see images of silver and gold with their ornaments, and with other such speeches he exhorted them, that the law should not depart from their hearts. It was also contained in that same writing that the prophet, being warned of God, commanded the tabernacle, and the ark, to go with him, as he went forth into the mountain, where Moses climbed up, and saw the heritage of God, the mountain which Moses died on. And when Jeremy came thither, he found a hollow cave, wherein he laid the tabernacle, and the ark, and the altar of incense, and so stopped the door, meaning he plugged it up. And some of those that followed him came to mark the way, but they could not find it. Which when Jeremy perceived, he blamed them, saying, As for that place, it shall be unknown until the time that God gathers his people together again and receives them unto mercy. This book known as 2 Maccabees, or, I'm sorry, 2nd Maccabees. I'm not a seminary student and really don't care. This book, known as 2 Maccabees, was an abridgment made in the 2nd century B.C. from a more lengthy and now lost history by Jason of Cyrene, which was written perhaps a few decades earlier. Whether or not we accept the account of the fate of the Ark, which is found in 2 Maccabees, it is certainly a reliable witness in reference to the circumstances of its own time. It was probably written by 125 BC. Knowing that the book dates to such an early time, there is no reason to deny the testimony which it bears in this aspect that the Ark of the Covenant was not found in the Second Temple. They could have never written this if the Ark was sitting in the Temple. That would be kind of dumb. The Ark of the Covenant was not found in the second temple, which was the temple of Zerubbabel. And therefore, neither was the Ark in the temple of Herod at the time of Christ. It is important to understand the implications of the missing Ark. If there is no Ark, then there is no mercy seat. And there is also no testimony of the law, which the children of Israel had agreed to keep at Sinai. Therefore, according to the law itself, if there is no ark, there is no propitiation for sin, and all of the sacrifices and rituals of the entire second temple period and third temple period counting Herod's Temple up to 70 AD, were of no effect, none whatsoever. They couldn't have been of any effect because there was no mercy seat and there was no testimony. So what the hell were they being made for? For show. They were only being made for show. And here where Paul speaks of the sacrifices made for sin, he is speaking of the past tense of the time of Solomon's temple, and not of his own time, as we have seen. Now we have yet another digression. There is an extant tale that the Ark of the Covenant covenant exists in Ethiopia, and it's kept by monkeys. But that is certainly not true. In the Persian period, Men of Judah were commissioned as mercenaries to a station at Elephantine, an island in the Nile River at the southern border of Egypt, who were to guard against invaders from the south. The Elephantine papyri revealed that these men had obtained permission to build a replica of the temple in Jerusalem. Building a replica of the temple necessitates building a replica of the ark, which was an important part of Solomon's temple. While the temple did not persist, if, if, that's a big if, if the Ethiopians really do have an ark, it is certainly this replica ark which they must possess. It is also probable that the so-called Falasha Jews are a vestige of these people who evidently committed fornication and mingled their seed with the seed of beasts to produce the modern Ethiopians, who at one time were actually white people. Returning our attention to Hebrews chapter 9 verse 3, There is a play on words in this passage, which may not be readily apparent. In the opening verse of this chapter, Paul used the term first as a reference to the Old Covenant and the ordinances for propitiation which it had decreed. Then he used the term first again in relation to the outer chamber of the original temple. Then here in verse 3, Paul used the expression, after the second veil in reference in reference to the veil separating the inner chambers of the temple. But while there should be no doubt that Paul used the word second to modify the noun for veil in his passage, he never mentioned the first veil. For that reason, here we are led to believe that Paul is using the term second in a purposely allegorical way, as opposed to the first temple itself, where he used the word first in the opening verse of the chapter. The allegory will unfold as he progresses with the chapter as Paul himself explains this in verses 7 and 8 of this chapter. But before proceeding, we have one more word in our translation. Actually we have another word and another phrase. (coughs) We have one more aspect in our translation to discuss, and that word is sphinxes. Here we have purposely written sphinxes rather than cherubim, choosing a more familiar term for the transliterated Hebrew word cherubim. If an ancient Greek were going to translate the word cherub into Greek, he may have written sphinx. It can be argued that the translators of the Septuagint and the Latin Vulgate did not translate the word cherub in this manner and that is true. They did not translate it at all. Nope. They left it even in the New Testament. It says cherubim. Throughout the Septuagint they never translated it. It says cherubim. Throughout the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate, it says cherub or cherubim or something similar since there were various spellings. It is evident in the church of that time that they may not have even known what a cherub was. The Roman Catholics often depict the cherub as a little child or infant with wings, which is absurd. The first century Judean priest and historian Flavius Josephus did not even know what a cherub looked like as he admitted in Antiquities of the Judeans in Book 8 in the description of the Ark of the Covenant. He said that no one can tell or even conjecture what was the shape of these cherubims Earlier in that book of Antiquities, in Book 3, Josephus had said of the ark, that upon this, its cover, were two images, which the Hebrews called cherubims. They are flying creatures, so they had wings, we know that, but their form is not like to that of any of the creatures which men have seen, though Moses said he had seen such beings near the throne of God, and Ezekiel did too, in Ezekiel chapter 1, once we understand what they are. The form of the word cherubims, with an S at the end, is a grammatical mishap, since in Hebrews cherubim is plural for cherub. We could say cherubs or cherubim, we shouldn't really say cherubims, which shows you that not even Whiston and the King James Version translators knew what they were. From Assyrian inscriptions, where a very similar term was used, cherub, or cherub, we know the cherub to be a winged bull, usually with the head of a man. The Assyrian inscriptions prove our point that cherubs are sphinxes, beyond doubt. From the Egyptians, we know the sphinx to be a winged lion, also having the head of a man. We would assert that both of these forms, the Assyrian, which is missing the lion part, and the Egyptian, which is missing the bull part, are modifications of the original cherub. If we combine the two forms, we end up with a Hebrew cherub. Josephus and his contemporaries did not have the information which we today have from archaeology, since the monuments of Assyria at the time of Josephus had long been buried and forgot. But they were dug up out of the ground by Europeans in the nineteenth century. Archaeological finds assure the connection of the Sphinx to the cherub, as evidenced in articles in Biblical Archaeology Review, several articles. Archaeology Archeo, Archaeology Odyssey, I'm sorry, and various issues of Bible review, which I've seen myself. A quote from a 1995 article entitled Cherubim, God's Throne, with a question mark, and of course that's what was on the Ark, says that the cherub symbolized not only omnipotence and omniscience, but, as we shall see, a kind of completeness that included all else. Now, we don't necessarily agree with that, but the cherub had a lion's front quarters, a bull's hind quarters, An eagle's wings and the head of a man. The depictions are absolutely evocative of the symbols described in Ezekiel chapter one verse ten and in Revelation chapter four verse seven. Later in history, several different variations of the sphinx or cherub were popular in a book titled The Sea Traders. Maitland A. Eddy and the editors of Time Life Books in 1974 placed a large illustration of the interior of the ancient temple of Jerusalem which is depicted as containing two very large sphinxes overshadowing the Ark of the Covenant and two small sphinxes affixed to the cover of the Ark. This serves to illustrate It's not a proof of what the inside of the Temple of Jerusalem looked like. It was a scholar's reconstruction, we might say. But this serves to illustrate that mainstream scholars understand the nature of the cherub from archaeological findings, and of course they do. To us this is important. Why? Because of all the references to cherubs and depictions of cherubs, or sphinxes, in early Greek writings, as well as Mesopotamian inscriptions, as well as the famous sphinx of ancient Egypt and many other sphinxes which were found in Egypt, the Phoenicians spread carved cherubs, or sphinxes, throughout the lands in which they settled, as many had been found by archaeologists in northern Africa and in Iberia. A marble sphinx with western features was found in a 1,000-year-old grave in what is now northern China, an area traversed by Aryan tribes. So this serves to demonstrate that the Greeks, the Assyrians, and the Egyptians, as well as the Hebrews, had many common aspects to their culture which they all shared within the wider ancient world. So here we will quote a few short paragraphs from an article on a sphinx from the ancient history encyclopedia found on the internet and based in Britain and add some of our own comments and quoting the article and this is four short paragraphs I believe a sphinx is a mythical creature with the body of a lion most often with a human head and sometimes with wings the creature was an Egyptian invention, and we would say that this is only assumed by the historians, and had a male head, human or animal. However, in ancient Greek culture, the creature had a head of a woman. The sphinx is also present in the art and sculpture of the Mycenaean, which is the Dan in Greek, Assyrian, Persian, and Phoenician civilizations. Sphinxes were first created by the Egyptians, and usually wore a nemes, meaning a headdress, as worn by the pharaohs, so they were a symbol of rulership. Examples exist of sphinxes with human faces, but surrounded by a lion's mane, particularly from Nubia, copycats. And in the New Kingdom, the head was sometimes that of a ram, as representative of Amun, which we would say are later artistic innovations the exact date when the first sphinx appeared is not known and the most famous sphinx of all the great sphinx of giza has not been precisely dated some scholars date it as far back as the reign of cheops circa 2500 bc and this this dating is very plausible there is a story that in the 18th dynasty, Thutmose IV, when he was a mere prince, went on a hunting expedition and fell asleep in the shadow of the Sphinx. While asleep he dreamed that the Sphinx spoke to him and promised that he would become king if he cleared the sands that had accumulated around the feet of the statue. In the reign of Chephren, and this is much earlier, over a thousand years earlier than Thutmose IV, In the reign of Chephren, sphinxes became more widespread, and they were usually placed as guards outside of temples, tombs, and funerary monuments, and that is why the Assyrians used sphinxes as talismans to protect things, protect buildings. Sphinxes were also present in the art of the Minoan and Mycenaean cultures from the early second millennium b c the earliest examples are found on clay relief plaques used to decorate pottery vessels and on beaten gold dress ornaments from Minoan Crete later three-dimensional sphinxes were similarly added to clay vessels and a surviving fresco from Pylos also depicted the mythical creature. In the 13th century BC, there are examples of pottery found in Cyprus, but probably manufactured on the Greek mainland, with painted sphinxes in silhouette, often in pairs, and positioned heraldically. Sphinxes were also a popular subject for Mycenaean ivory carving, usually in the form of plaques and small lidded boxes. Now, sphinxes positioned heraldically, meaning that they were symbols of royalty or they were family crests. The Mycenaeans were the Danae who had come to Greece from Egypt probably not long before 1500 BC. And our article continues. The sphinx was also commonly represented in both Assyrian and Persian art, usually with wings and a male human head. Large sculpted sphinxes in the shape of winged bulls often stood in pairs outside palaces and guarded against evil forces. In Assyrian inscriptions, these creatures were called cherubs. They weren't called sphinxes. Sphinx is a Greek word. In Assyrian inscriptions, these creatures were called cherubs, so we know what a cherub is, because of the similarity and the fact that it was found, called by that name in Assyrian inscriptions. Such an example is the large sphinx presently in the British Museum which once stood outside the palace of Asher Nasir Paltu at Nimrud circa 865 BC. Persian architecture often incorporated sphinxes in low relief in walls and gates. Examples from Susa 6th century BC and Persepolis dating to the 4th century BC depict male-headed sphinxes wearing divine horned headdresses. While our translation of this epistle to the Hebrews was first made in 2001, in 2010, when we could, we wrote the following short paragraph at And we said that a cherub is basically a sphinx. Or more exactly, a sphinx is a variation on a cherub. While the sphinx is a watered-down version, the cherub was a sphinx-like creature with the head of a man the wings of an eagle the forebody of a lion and the rear body of a bull these are the same four symbols described as being a part of the throne of yahweh in both the revelation and in the opening chapters of ezekiel they are also the same four symbols of the standards of the leading tribes situated around the tabernacle in the wilderness the eagle for Dan, the lion for Judah, the bull for Ephraim, and the man for the standard of Reuben. Here we have seen academic testimony vindicating the connection between cherub and sphinx which we had asserted in our translation of this passage of Hebrews. We have also seen that such sphinxes or cherubs were a prominent aspect of early Aryan art, literature, and religious belief in many early white nations. They are found in Egypt, Assyria, Persia, Greece, and they were found as far away as Carthage and Iberia and Northern Asia. The first mention of a cherub is found in Genesis chapter 3 and they are an important component of the architecture of the Ark of the Covenant and of the Temple of Yahweh. But while the Egyptians apparently connected the cherub to rulership, and the Hebrews and Greeks connected the cherub to divinity, the Greeks, uh, I'm sorry the Hebrews and Persians connected the cherub to divinity, the Greeks had a somewhat more negative view. So for this reason we will continue with one more paragraph from our article where it says that in contrast to the Egyptian view the ancient Greeks saw the Sphinx as a more troublesome creature and the most famous myth involving a Sphinx is that of the Theban prince Oedipus the territory of thebes in greece which was settled by phoenicians according to all greek accounts the territory of thebes in greece was terrorized by a sphinx and hesiod tells us in his theogony that the creature was born from the chimera a fire-breathing monster with three heads and a body part lion goat snake and dragon and was sister to the nemean lion and half-sister of Kerberus, the three-headed dog that guarded Hades. The Sphinx created drought and famine, and would only leave the Thebans alone if they solved her riddle. This was to define the creature. It has two, three, or four feet, and although it is able to change its form, it moves slower the more feet it uses. Anyone who dared to answer the riddle and failed to do so correctly, was killed and devoured by the Sphinx. When the Sphinx killed his son Hymen, Creon, the king of Thebes, became so desperate at the situation that he offered his kingdom and his daughter, daughter Yocasta, to anyone who could answer the riddle. Oedipus took up the challenge and gave the correct answer, which was man. Man on four feet is a baby crawling, man on three is an older man with a cane, man on two feet is man in his prime, and the more feet man, use, man uses, the slower he goes. That's the riddle. And in frustration and anger, the Sphinx leapt to her death from the Acropolis of Thebes. Scenes of the hero of the Sphinx are the most common depictions in art of the Oedipus myth, and appeared from the 6th century BC on pottery, on carved gems, and as a decorative device on fabrics. The Thebans were described as, and and that's the end of our citation, the Thebans were described by the tragic poets as Phoenicians, and as having had blonde hair and fair skin. Of course, in the end, it did not fare so well for Oedipus, and Thebes was brought to disaster. While we cannot account for the negative Greek attitude towards the Sphinx in the histories, we can only conjecture that if, as it is demonstrable, the Phoenicians, Danans, and later Dorians of Greece had descended from the ancient Israelites, perhaps, and this is conjecture, Perhaps their ambivalence for the Sphinx represented their rebellion from Yahweh their God, who was represented by the Sphinx on the Ark of the Covenant, and later in his temple. And if the ambivalence was only held originally among the Athenians, to whom much of the literature belongs, perhaps that is because they were the outsiders of the competing Ionian tribes. But in either case, that is only conjecture. We read in the instructions given to Moses in Exodus chapter 25, And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold, of beaten work shalt thou make them, in the two ends of the mercy seat. Here we translate it as seat of propitiation, a phrase which in most versions is mercy seat. The same word, hilasterion appears in a different context in Romans chapter 3 for which the King James Version correctly has propitiation. The word hilastness is a means of appeasing or propitiating, which in the case of the children of Israel is the propitiation for sin. This is an aspect of the mercy of God upon Israel which is not always properly conveyed in the modern perceptions of the word mercy. Mercy, granted by God, is a remission of punishment for sin when the propitiation which God requires is made on the behalf of the sinner. And with that, we will commence with Hebrews chapter 9 with verse 6. Now these things, having been prepared, the priests are sent into the first tabernacle continually, fulfilling the services but into the second, once in a year, only the high priest, not without blood, which he offers for himself, and the faults of ignorance, or the sins of ignorance of the people. The tabernacle in the wilderness, as well as the temple built by Solomon, had an outer chamber and an inner chamber. The inner chamber is the holy sanctuary in Leviticus chapter 16, and it is called the Holy of Holies here in verse 3, and in several passages in the Septuagint. While the priests entered into the outer chamber quite often, the inner chamber was only to be entered into once a year, according to the instructions given first in Exodus, and again later in Leviticus. Here we shall read from chapter 16 of Leviticus, where it speaks in reference to the high priest and the Day of Atonement, and it says... And this shall be a statute forever under you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, ye shall afflict your souls, meaning have a fast, and do without luxuries, and do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country, or a stranger that sojourns among you. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you, to cleanse you, that ye may be clean from all your sins before Yahweh it shall be a Sabbath of rest unto you, and you shall afflict your souls by a statute forever. And the priest whom he shall anoint, and whom he shall consecrate to minister in the priest's office in his father's stead, shall make the atonement, and shall put on the linen clothes, even the holy garments. And he shall make an atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make an atonement for the tabernacle of the congregation and for the altar. And he shall make an atonement for the priests, and for all the people of the congregation. And this shall be an everlasting statute unto you, to make an atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once in a year, as he did, and he did as Yahweh commanded Moses. And Moses did as Yahweh commanded Moses. The language of the King James is sometimes pretty difficult. The complete picture of the procedures of the law, is rarely given in most of the chapters of the law, but they may frequently be correlated with other chapters where they're given in order to be better understood. So references to the same sacrificial ritual were given earlier in Exodus chapter 30, and it says there of the Ark of the Covenant where Aaron was also commanded to build an altar for the burning of incense, And thou shalt put it before the veil that is by the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with thee. The seat of propitiation sat upon the ark holding the testimony, or tablets of the covenant, and it represented the seat of Yahweh, where He accepted the sacrifices made on behalf of the sins of Israel, and granted mercy in return for those sacrifices. For that, The sacrifice made by Yahshua Christ was an eternal replacement. And since the Levitical high priest made propitiation only for the children of Israel, so then it is with Yahshua Christ. But throughout that whole second temple period, while those priests were making sacrifices, there was no ark, and there was no mercy seat, and there was no presence of Yahweh on a mercy seat so there was no propitiation for sin until Christ, and anyone who Christ did not come for, and anyone who has not accepted Christ has no propitiation for sin. Continuing in reference to the inner chamber, which was only entered into once a year, Paul then says in verse 8, this signifying the Holy Spirit, that not yet has a way of the saints been made manifest, the first tabernacle still having a standing, which, and Paul's referring back to Solomon's temple, which is a parable for the present time, at which both gifts and sacrifices are altered, not being able conscientiously to bring he who is serving to perfection, except in foods and drinks and various cleansing, ordinances of the flesh being imposed until the time of restoration. Other words have been translated as restoration in different contexts. Here the word does not refer to the kingdom or to the status of the Adamic man, but rather it is from the Greek word diorthosis a word which is only found here in the New Testament and which is literally a making straight. Where we have the word parable, the King James Version has figure, but the Greek word is parabole, which is usually transliterated as parable in the King James Version. So Paul implies that the sacrificial rituals of the Old Testament were never expected to bring any man to perfection neither could they bring man to perfection for as long as the temple stood, because they were fleshly, and as Paul wrote in reference to God in Romans chapter 3, that by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. And likewise with this did David agree. In the 143rd Psalm, where he wrote speaking to Yahweh God, that in thy sight shall no man living be justified. Rather, the gifts and the sacrifices were a parable for the present time, which is when Christ had to die in order to relieve the children of Israel of the penalty of death which they face for their sins. The sacrifices were imposed until the time when Israel would be offered the opportunity of a making straight, so that they would know the way to their God. In a different context, Paul had told the Galatians that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith, they also being of the the seed of Abraham and of the descendants of ancient Israel. As a side note, we see that the food laws are still in effect, where Paul said that except in food and drinks and various cleansings, ordinances of the flesh being imposed until the time of restoration. The food laws are still in effect, as Paul notes in verse 10, that the ordinances of the flesh are imposed as a part of what is required of men until that time of making straight. One cannot defile one's body, which is the temple for the spirit, and expect to be perfected as Paul himself had written in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit in you which you have from Yahweh and you are not your own. So according to Paul here the inner sanctum or holy of holies of the first temple was a parable which signified the greater reconciliation of the spiritual aspect of the Adamic man with Yahweh his God But the parable, being fleshly, by itself could not bring any man to achieve perfection. This also serves to demonstrate the failure of any reliance on the works of man to achieve perfection. The works, or rituals of the law, were never meant to have any efficacy except as a symbolic means of seeking the mercy of God for sin. But as Paul shall state later in his epistle, they themselves could not remove sin. Next he goes on to explain what these rituals were symbolic of, and he says, But Christ, coming to be high priest, of the coming good things, through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made by hand, that is, not of this creation, nor by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, entered once for all into the holy places, procuring eternal redemption. Joshua Christ, dying and being resurrected, and passing into heaven while he was yet alive, had fulfilled the law and paved the way for man to have reconciliation with God, which in the apostasy of the entire race is something that could have only been accomplished by God himself. So in verse 24 of this chapter, Paul goes on to say that Christ entered not into the holy places made by hand, representations of the true, but into heaven itself, to appear now in the presence of Yahweh on our behalf. The spirit of Yahweh, as well as the Adamic spirit, are not of this creation, and therefore being of God, the people who bear it may transcend this creation. Thus it is written, in the wisdom of Solomon, that God created man to be immortal, and made him to be an image of his own eternity. So the Apostle John wrote in chapter 5 of his first epistle, that we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, as he explained in an earlier chapter, because they alone have an intercessor in Christ. But he that is begotten of God keeps himself, and that wicked one touches him not, and he doesn't keep himself by his own hand. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. Those who are from beneath, the adversaries of Christ, are from below, and they therefore cannot transcend this creation. The inner sanctum of the temple, and the sacrifices which were made there, served as a parable, because it represented the union of man in the form of the high priest with that God who appeared in the inner sanctum. This union was a type for Yahshua Christ. The ultimate union of God and man because he was God incarnate as man. That the tablets of the testimony were in the ark was symbolic of the basis by which man could have the mercy of God, as Christ Himself had also said, that if you love Me, keep My commandments. The law and the old covenants were Yahweh's means of ensuring his word and the preservation of a nation and a race in the midst of a sinful world. By these means he kept his word to Abraham until the people had gone off into sin, and through Christ he now keeps the promises to Abraham in spite of their sins. The promising Christ transcends the law and the Old Covenant, of which the entire objective was to produce a Messiah and pave the way by which Yahweh would keep the promises to Abraham. Consider this, that the Old Covenant trappings, the rituals and sacrifices, the temple and the priesthood, were only a parable for what was to come, according to Paul of Tarsus himself. As he wrote in the opening verse of Hebrews chapter 10, For the law, having a shadow of the coming good, and not itself the image of the matters, each year with the same sacrifices which they offer in perpetuity, is never able to perfect those coming forth. If Yahweh had the children of Israel live through a thousand-year parable, only to teach them the lesson that their own works cannot save them, How do we compare the trials of the present age with the glory of the age which is to come? For this reason, we should know, we should now know with certainty that our own deeds cannot save us, and we should seek instead to please Yahshua Christ. We must depart from these earthly trappings, which lead to self-righteousness, and serve our God in the Spirit, whereby we serve one another. That is the foremost lesson of the Gospel. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. And good night.